This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. We are looking at the 21st century generation, and we're talking about how the Lord has specifically designed the message of the Bible to reach this generation. Now let's review what we looked at the first two classes, then we'll pray and launch right into our third class. In our first class, we pointed out that a 21st century postmodern generation looks at belonging before they look at believing. They want to feel this sense of community. They're not so interested in what is truth until they see truth working in your life. They're more interested in models than they are in methods. And we pointed out that it is only through relationship that we can break down barriers and prejudice. And that if we're going to reach a 21st century generation, it's going to take more than a tweet. God did not send a tweet. He sent his son. It's going to take a lot more than merely uh, blinking at people as we race by them. But if we're going to reach a 21st century generation, it's going to take deep, lasting relationships that we develop. And as we develop relationships and minister to people's needs, we see prejudice breaking down. And then gently, gradually, lovingly share a principle of truth here, a principle of truth there. And remember we talked about the postmodern mind, and basically what the postmodern mind says is, you may have your truth, I may have my truth, but there's nothing really that is objective truth or objective reality. It may be okay for you. And one of the way, things that postmoderns do is they love story. And what, in witnessing to a postmodern mind, we might say something like this, after we've developed the relationship, showed our care, love, and needs, we might say, you know, I know you're going through a tough time right now. Let's suppose you have a friend whose father just died of cancer. Let's suppose you have a friend whose mother just died of a heart attack. Let's suppose you have a friend whose father's out of work or a friend who applied for a job, thought they were the leading candidate in that job, but never got the job. And you see that your friend is struggling with something. You've developed the relationship. You have the right to be heard. And you might say something like this, you know, John, I know you're going through a real tough time now with your mother's death, but may I share with you? See, it's not, let me tell you, it's, may I share with you? You know, very gently, may I share with you something that really has worked in my own life? Now, why is that comment so significant to postmodern people? Because they don't want to be told truth. They want to see what's worked for you. Let me share with you something that has, has really worked in my own, something that's been very meaningful to me. You know, one thing that's been meaningful to me is to understand that death is not the end of the road. And, um, you know, when I, when I consider death, it really is, I've struggled over that issue as well. And I've wondered, is death the end? Is it a dark hole in the ground? Is it a, is it a night without a morning? And, I know probably your mother's death has brought up a lot of these questions in your own mind, brought up a lot of these questions. And one of the peaceful things that I have, although we don't have all the answers, obviously, I have found in the Bible something that's really meaningful to me, and that is 
death is, is but a rest. It's like a sleep. And so your mother no longer suffers from that cancer. And it's been really, really helpful to me. And I'd really be more than happy to, re -ex to explore that with you if you might be interested. Now, notice what I did in that conversation. A, I began to identify with the individual. I didn't say, let me tell you the Bible truth. If I'd have said that, what would have happened? Barriers would have come up. Let me tell you something that's worked in my life. Typically, are you going to deny somebody telling you something that's worked for them? Not if you're postmodern. You're not going to, typically. And then I've said, may I share with you? You share a little bit. And if you see the person responding, you say, would you like me to share more with you about that? And so here's our formula as we work with postmodern people. We develop relationships. We meet human needs. As we develop those relationships and meet needs, we begin looking for points of interest in contact where we can gently share a biblical principle. As we share that principle, we watch for the opening of the heart and mind where we are able to share other principles. Now, there are many contact points. Some of you this morning, I mentioned that a story about a couple who had come to a nutrition class that we were conducting and um, that really impacted their entire lives. And uh, some of you have asked my wife if, about her cookbook and workbook materials. Uh, if you want to look at it after class, you, she's sitting in the back there. This is her natural lifestyle cooking cookbook. And uh, each person coming to the seminar uh, of natural lifestyle cooking will work through the cookbook and begin implementing the recipes. And this is a workbook that gives you all the scientific material to reach postmodern people. And um, it's seven classes from everything from how to make bread to granolas to breakfast cereals and how to make breakfast a better meal to balancing your meals. But these are the lectures and the workbook that the people receive. So they get their recipes out of this. So we've tried to develop a variety of ways of reaching a postmodern culture. So here's the formula, developing relationships, meeting needs, sharing a Bible text, watching for the openness of the heart as people are open, handing them a magazine, giving them a book, working with them gently until their hearts and minds open to the gospel. Now, how many of you were here in our first class? You were here the first class. Okay, let's then review, just to keep in mind as I go into this class, do you have your worksheet from the first class, okay? I just want to look very quickly again to keep in your mind the... Um, the characteristics of the postmodern mind, okay? So here's our target group. Our target group are young professionals. Our target group are people, university students. And uh, we've looked at eight, eight principles that govern the postmodern mind. And we've talked about how the message of Christ, how the message of Adventism appeals to them. Um, this was on page uh, two of the first worksheet, and then we'll go right to class three. Number one. For the postmodern mind, life is based on relationships. Belonging and a sense of identity with the larger community are far more important than believing a particular creed or doctrine. So the postmodern mind is starved for relationships. You know, people will, will, will text. They, 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 they have scores of Facebook likes, but very few close friends. Scores of likes, but very few close friends. They have... Scores of people they tweet, we pointed out that 
The average teenage girl, 16, 17 years old, does 100 tweets a, a day, uh, 100 texts a day. The average guy, teenager, does 50 a day. So many people you have this casual contact with. So you go out to eat in a restaurant. You sit there on your cell phone. She sits there on her cell phone. Um, you sit there texting. She sits there texting. So what happens is there's a very smaller attention span. And so people are not listened to because our society is rushed, our society is hurried. It's a tense, anxious society. And so people are uptight, they're rushing, they're hurrying. We've got to do everything fast. I've got to tweet you fast, I've got to text you fast, I've got, got to move fast. And what happens is the heart needs of the human race are not being met. And so the 21st century postmodern mind longs for relationship. Somebody that'll listen, somebody that'll care, somebody that'll hear the heart needs. Secondly, in the postmodern culture, each individual creates their own reality. There are no objective norms. Feelings of rightness or an inner sense of moral correctness guide all behavior. Postmoderns are looking for models more than methods. They seek application more than theory. Now here's what the postmodern mind works, wants something that's workable. Don't give me a theory. Give me something that's workable. When Christianity works in your life, and it's life transformational for you, that makes all the difference in the postmodern mind. You earn the right to be heard when Christianity is real. A postmodern culture can spot a fake a mile away. So the thing that postmoderns don't want is a lot of razzmatazz about religion, a lot of uh, hype about religion. What postmoderns really long for is something that's genuine, something that's worked. When you have a real experience with Jesus, when you have a prayer experience with Jesus, when you know Jesus, when Jesus is guiding you in your own life, when the Bible has transformed your life, and when you share out of the context of your own experience, that makes an incredible difference in the postmodern mind. Okay, number three. For the postmodern, the essence of life is experience in the larger context of a larger meta-narrative. What are some of the more popular movies in the last 10 years? Well, when you look at the Hollywood movie scene, not that I know because I don't watch that stuff, but I'm a student, you look at the Star Wars trilogy, what's that? It's a meta-narrative. What's a meta-narrative? It's a larger story. Have you, have you ever noticed uh, the tremendous interest in the Harry Potter stories today? I mean, they're off the charts, millions, what's that? Well, it's really the story of a boy and his witchcraft. So there's this kind of, for the postmodern, there's this kind of fuzzy spirituality out there somewhere in the context of a larger story. Do Adventists have anything to say to this culture? We are the ones who know the meta-narrative. We're the ones that know the story from the fall of Lucifer in heaven, down through the fall of Adam and Eve to the cross, down through the Reformation to the restoration of truth to the coming of Jesus. See, our message is tailor-made for a generation that's looking for the larger story to now the picture fits together. Um, Four in the postmodern mind is ideas of truth, reason, and knowledge give way to signs, experience, and feeling. In other words, for the, for the postmodern person, truth, reason, and knowledge are not nearly as important for them as feelings and experience. That is a danger. Why do you think that's dangerous? 
Why is that dangerous? Because the devil can counterfeit your feelings. I believe that the devil is preparing this generation for the largest deception in the history of the world. When you move away from objective truth, as found in the Word of God, and you base your religious experience on feelings, and the devil palms off counterfeit miracles, and the devil palms off a religious experience based on emotion that gives you a temporary pickup rather than the life-changing, sanctifying power of the Word of God. See, we live in an age of instance. You know, this instant oatmeal. It's <laughs> the Instagram. You know, instance. So a generation that does not want to look at the Word of God substitutes it for experience. The devil's going to counterfeit that with a false Pentecostal experience of signs, wonders, and emotionalism that they think is real but actually is counterfeit. And he will prepare the mind for the false manifestation of Satan as Christ. And that will draw millions. But there will be a group of heavenish young people, many of them sitting in this room for, at GYC, who have a deep love for Jesus Christ, a love for his word, who see the life-transforming power in the word of God. And as the result of that, their friends will notice something different and will be attracted to that rather than a candy-coated, sugar-coated gospel that's very surfacy but it does not produce meaningful lifestyle change. Okay, number five in the postmodern mind, a strong sense of justice and fairness, tolerance, compassion, equality are the new norm. So, see, the postmodern mind wants justice, fairness, equality, tolerance, those, you know, you live your way, I live my way, as long as you don't hurt me and I don't hurt you, everything is fine. Do Adventists have anything to say to that society? They sure do. What can we say? We can say life is very unfair and often people are marginalized, often the poor are trodden down. Jesus said, do justice and love mercy. But we also say that there is a judgment and in that judgment, God's justice and righteousness and love and mercy will be revealed and one day evil will be put away with forever. And although life is not fair, God is fair. Although life at times is not just, God is just. And God will sit on his throne. You see Daniel 7 and Revelation 14 and the message of a cosmic judgment in which God is on trial before the whole universe and where his fairness is being questioned. The Adventist message of this cosmic judgment and the conflict between good and evil is the answer to the ultimate problem of uh, the postmodern mind for justice and equality. God understood the thinking of an end time generation when he gave to the Adventist church an end time message. God understood the thinking of an end time generation when he gave to the Adventist church an end time message. Number six in the postmodern mind, there's a move away from materialism, capitalism, consumerism as the essence of life's meaning. There's a strong interest by many postmodern people in health and a simpler of life. Doesn't the Adventist message, doesn't it fit, do we look at that this way? It fits in there, right? It really does. We talk about wholeness of life, physical, mental, spiritual. Our, our health message reaches out to this generation, this society. I am so excited to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I've been preaching the Adventist message around the world for 45 years, and it's like I learned it yesterday and can't wait to tell it today. You know, really, it is, as I travel the world and I see the heart need of this generation 
and I see the message that God has given. If there's anything that should inspire young people today, if there's anything that should lift our vision and encourage our hearts, you as a generation have been entrusted with an end time message that's designed. This is no time to apologize for our message. This is not something that's the byproduct of 19th century mentality that's kind of out of date. God has given to us a message for this generation. Uh, we looked at the postmodern mind seven. Truth has much more to do with doing it right than getting it right. So that what they're saying is this, that in the postmodern mind, you better have it together yourself. That's the basic thing. And number eight, since life is the product of the postmodern mind of biological chance, its meaning must be found within. The Bible and all the sacred writings provide stories of people seeking for meaning and purpose rather than objective truth. In other words, the postmodern mind says that there is no objective truth, that everybody seeks truth for themselves. But here's the good news. The postmodern mind wants a story. And you and I can tell the story of what Christ has done in our own lives. We can tell the story of biblical characters who found answers. And it just, wow, it just opens the mind. We looked in that first session at the postmodern mind and how it's tailored for this generation. Our second session, we said after you build relationships, you can't leave people in relationship. You and I may build very positive relationships, but there has to become some bridge where we share with them the Word of God. And that's the second aspect that we looked at. We looked at the 10 powerful life-changing truths in God's Word. And we're just amazed, incredibly amazed, at how powerful God's Word is. Now, in this session, we're going to talk about the human mind and how the human mind functions. And we're going to talk about how to apply everything we've learned to help people make decisions incrementally. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus and Thank you for the fact that you have given us a message for this generation that meets the deepest heart needs. We pray thee just now that you'd bless us as we come to learn at your feet. As we open your word, may it make a dramatic difference in our own hearts and in our own lives. And as we build relationships with others, and as we share your word with them, teach us the process of understanding how people think. And as we do, help us to know how to reach them for you. In Christ's name, amen. If you're a Christian at all or an Adventist, which most of us are, you've, heard, you've sung some of the hymns of Isaac Watts. You know, Isaac Watts was one of the great uh, hymn writers of the Christian church. You may not be aware of it. Isaac Watts was a very small man, about 5'2", five, 5'3", five, old, shriveled up, but his mind just kind of thought in really these, these poets, poetry. And when his father would scold him, his father would get really upset with him, and uh, Isaac Watts would rattle off some poem and get his father laughing, and his father wouldn't spank him, you know. So one day in London, England, there was this parade in Isaac Watts's honor. And Isaac Watts was sitting in a horse-drawn carriage, and they were coming along the street, and people were sitting on the balconies looking down, and, the English had sung the great mighty hymns of Isaac Watts, and as the carriage went under a balcony, a woman was sitting on the balcony, on her veranda, looking down at the parade. And she couldn't believe that this little, shriveled up, old man was Isaac Watts. And she saw his carriage come by, and she looked down, and she said, what? You are Isaac Watts? You know, she had sung many of these great hymns, and she 
pictured in her mind this great muscular man, six foot three, you know, and she saw this little shriveled up guy, five foot two, and she said, what, you Isaac Watts? And Watts uh, motioned for the whole uh, parade to stop. And he stood up, stretched himself out to his shriveled old man, five foot two and a half frame. And he pointed at the lady and said, Madam, could I in fancy grasp the poles or hold creation in my hand? I'd still be measured by my mind, for the mind is the measure of a man. <laughs> and it's true. Jesus has given you a mind. What is it that lifts us above the animal creation? What is it that makes you different than a cat, a dog? What is it that makes you different than an animal? The ability to think, the ability to reason, the ability to make moral choices. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them with the ability to choose. And God took an incredible risk. There was nothing wrong in Eden, but God gave them the power of choice. And when Adam and Eve wrongly used that power of choice, it plunged the world into sickness and suffering and death. Satan can use lying, he can use force, he can use coercion. But God can only use love, and he can only use truth. So God has given you a mind to make positive choices for his kingdom. Here is the question. When you are working, sharing Christ with somebody else, what processes go on in their mind? How do they process decisions? What will influence them to make positive decisions? If you understand what I'm going to share with you in the next 45 minutes, you will be able to powerfully persuade people for Christ and his kingdom. But what I'm going to share with you is incredibly dangerous. Here's why. Because if you use this wrongly, you can manipulate people. If you use what I'm going to share you wrongly, you can manipulate people. Now remember what Ellen White said. She said, in fourth volume of the Testimonies, page 67, she said, in order to win souls to Jesus, there must be a study of what? The human mind. Jesus said, in or Ellen White says, in order to win souls to Jesus, there must be a study of the human mind. In anatomy and physiology, are there certain laws of anatomy and physiology? Are there? If you eat a high-fat diet, will that contribute to coronary heart disease? Are there laws that work any place in the world in the area of a science? For example, let's suppose that I'm on this platform. If I'm on the United States and I jump off, I'm going to go down. But if I'm in the Philippines and I jump off, I'm going to go up, right? Well, it's a different culture, right? If I smoke cigarettes in Europe, I may get lung cancer, but and African lungs will never get lung cancer if they smoke cigarettes, right? Are there certain laws of anatomy and physiology that are going to function anywhere? Are there? Are there certain scientific laws? What is the law of inertia? Somebody define inertia for me. Where's my science student? I must have at least one science student. Inertia. What's inertia? An object in motion Okay. Okay, an object in motion must stay in motion unless it is stopped by some other force. So, if I'm in motion, I'm going to stay in motion until what? Till this object stops me, okay? 
So that's inertia. Inertia is a universal law. So if there are universal scientific laws and there are universal health laws, there are universal laws of the mind. The universal laws of the mind work whether you understand they work or not. If I do not understand that smoking is going to cause cancer, because I don't understand it, does that mean I can continue to smoke and it won't cause cancer? If I don't understand that exercise is going to help me reduce my weight, but I exercise, will I still get the benefit of exercise if I don't understand it? Sure. The more I understand it, the more I can appropriate those laws. Now, the reason I said that is this. There are laws of the mind that function whether you understand them or not. So there are three things we want to look. Well, first, we want to look at the will. Then we want to look at the three laws of the will. Then we want to look at the four laws of choice. So we look at the will, the three laws of the will, the four laws of choice, and apply this in a soul-winning context. First, what is the will? The will is the, let's go back and let's let Ellen White help us to define this. You're looking at your worksheets, number three, and um, here we go. You're looking at worksheet number three, God's Word Applied. You're looking at the middle of the page. There is a, there is a bold section in the middle of the page from Ministry of Healing, page 176. I've given you part of that quote, but I haven't given you the whole quote. Let me read up to the section. I'll give you what comes before in 176, then I'll come right to that section in your page. Okay, here's what you don't have. This is still from Ministry of Healing, 176. The tempted one needs to understand the true force of the will. What is that? This is the governing power in the nature of man. Okay, so what's the will? It's the governing power in the nature of man. The power of decision of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. So the will, and you don't have this here, but I'll come to what you have. The will is the governing power in the nature of man. If you take the Queen Mary, for example. The Queen Mary was about... 65,000 tons, if I remember correctly. The rudder was 85 tons. And so here you have an 85-ton rudder guiding a 65,000-ton boat. So the rudder is relatively small in comparison to the boat, but it guides its direction. So the will is the governing power in the nature of man. It is that which determines the choices that we make. Um, it's the power of decision, the power of choice. Ellen White says, everything depends on the right action of the will. Desires for goodness and purity are right as far as they go, but if we stop there, they're going to avail nothing. Many will go down to ruin while hoping and desiring to overcome their evil propensities. So they hope to overcome, they desire to overcome, but do they overcome? Why not? They do not yield the will to God. They do not choose to serve Him. Now we're coming to... Ministry of Healing, page 176 on your sheet. Let's read it together. We'll start with through the right exercise of the will. Let's read. Through the right exercise of the will, an entire change may be made in the life. By yielding up the will to Christ, we ally ourselves with divine power. We receive strength from above to hold us steadfast.
a pure and noble life, a life of victory over appetite and lust, is possible to everyone who unite his weak, wavering will to the omnipotent, unwavering will of God. Now, so what is the will? It's the governing power in the nature of man. What is our role as soul winners? It's to help people to make a positive choice. We do not overcome with willpower. We overcome with whose power? God. But our choice enables us to receive God's power. Our choice may be incredibly small. God's power is incredibly great. For example, let's suppose I teach at 2 o'clock at class, and I start another class at 3 and teach, and I'm really in the teaching rhythm. So I teach, I taught this morning, teach this afternoon, I teach tonight, and let's suppose I get so excited about my teaching that everybody leaves and I don't realize it, and I teach to empty chairs at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and 8 o'clock tonight. And pretty soon it's 10 o'clock, and I've been teaching all day, and I'm exhausted, and by now the janitor has come over, and he's turned the lights out. So it's totally dark, but I have had two or three people here sitting in the front row that they were so enthralled that they sat here for the whole eight or nine hours. And so now it's, it's absolutely pitch black. It's dark. And so I said, man, I can't find my way out of this room. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing over here. Would you help me, please? So my brother comes up and helps me. He says, what are we going to do? I say, look, we got to get out of this room, and it's pitch black. Let's push the darkness out. So he and I get up here. We link hands. We begin to push, 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 push. We push the darkness. We push the darkness. We push the darkness. Man, I worked for about 45 minutes, and I'm sweating like everything, and I didn't make any headway at all. No darkness went out. So I said to my brother, look, that didn't work. Over in the corner over there, there are brooms. Let's get three brooms going to sweep the darkness out. So we sweep for the next 45 minutes. We're sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. Darkness doesn't do a thing. And I'm saying, oh, brother, I'm beat now. Pretty soon my wife is missing me. And I hear, Mark, Mark. She's at the back door calling me. I said, you still teaching? You still teaching? Ah, I'm still teaching, but I've got to get out of here and I can't get this darkness out. She said, look, 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 come over here with me. She takes my finger, brings it over here and says, push right over there. I push the thing, push, push, push. I don't know, I may push fire alarms, so I gotta be careful what I push. So I begin pushing, and boosh, all the lights come on. Did I work harder trying to push the darkness out? Did I work harder sweeping the darkness out? The act of my finger swip, flipping the switch was not harder work than the other. But why did the light come on? Because as I chose to push the switch, I aligned myself with divine power, with, with electrical power that pushed the darkness out. When we are helping people to know Christ and overcome, we help them to look away from their weakness, to choose to grasp the promises of God in spite of their feelings, believe them and internalize them, and choose to live in harmony with what God says rather than what they, they, they feel. When we do that, there are miracles. I mean, I can remember a time that I was helping a woman quit smoking. Her name was Carol. She lived in the northeast part of the United States. And we sat down and she said to me, Pastor Mark, I really want to be baptized, but I just think it's totally, absolutely impossible for me to overcome smoking. And she said, you know, I know it's not right. I've smoked for about 20 years. 
I used to be a Seventh-day Adventist, but I left the church, and I, I've just begun to come back. I'd like to fully come back to the Lord, but I could never, ever give up smoking. I said, look, let's, let's study about it in the Bible. So we studied about the man by the Pool of Bethesda who was there for 38 years, who Christ transformed his life. I said, have you been smoking for 38 years? She was about 43. And she looked at me and started laughing. She said, Pastor, you know I'm not that old. And she said, no, I've been smoking about 20. And I said, did Jesus help this man? Yes, he did. Did he, thi did he think it was hopeless? Yes, he did. Then I said, let's, let's turn to a text. And so we turned, and if you have your Bible, please turn to this passage. Now, what was my goal? I wanted to help her to exercise her will, help her to make a choice to believe what God said in spite of her feelings of weakness. 1 John chapter 5. Let's start reading. We're going to look at verse 14. And I read, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I said, where is the confidence? She said, in him. I said, is it his will for you to give up smoking? Yes, it is. Verse 15, and we know that he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we desired of him. So this says that we can have confidence in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Is it his will for you to give up smoking? Yes. Do you think you can quit? No, pastor, I can't. No, I, I'm just too weak, pastor, I can't. I said, okay, Here's your pen. I want you to amend this Bible text because the Lord made a mistake. So you see where it says now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, except give up smoking, he hears us. So please write in right after his will, except give up smoking and put your name there, Carol. She said, Pastor, I, I can't do that. Pastor, I can't do that. I can't amend the Bible. So I said, you have one of two choices, don't you? Either you amend the Bible or you believe the Bible. And, I, and she, I smiled at her and she said, Pastor, I want to believe the Bible. I want to believe the Bible. I said, go get all your cigarettes. So she got all of her cigarettes, brought them, put them there on the floor. We knelt down. I said, look, we're going to seek God's victory for you. Let's read it again. This is the confidence that we have in him. Not a confidence in ourselves. What was I helping her to do? Take her weak, wavering will and put it in touch with the divine power of Christ. Remember what Ellen White said, everything depends on the right action of the will. It's a choice. We are not overcoming by willpower, but we choose to unite our weak, wavering will with God's almighty, eternal power. She put her cigarettes on the floor, and we knelt and we prayed, and we said, dear Lord, we can have confidence in you. I know that you can deliver, Carol, because you promised it in your word. She prayed. We saw the mighty power of God come down. I would call her each day. I would say, uh, are you taking your walk? Uh, are you getting your water? We do not take a walk or drink water or stay away from caffeinated beverages or any of that other stuff to gain the victory over tobacco. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. We gain the victory not by a good diet, not by a walk or by exercise. We gain the victory by faith. We sustain the victory. So is health important? Absolutely, absolutely. When I'm dealing with secular people, I start with the physical because they don't have the faith. 
But when I'm dealing with, with Christian people, I lead them to the Word of God, grasp the victory by faith, then I write out for them what to do. Okay, I want you to take a walk. I want you to get exercise. But I want you to believe that the victory is yours by faith. You know, I've seen God work so many miracles. One day, I was in a school in Chicago. In fact, it was when I was teaching at the North American Division Evangelism Institute. I was helping a young man to overcome tobacco. He was getting ready for baptism. We knelt down on the floor and I prayed for him. And as I prayed for him, I didn't think about it very much, but he had brought his cigarettes and he only could find one pack. And so I was kneeling on the floor with him and he's kneeling down and I was pouring out my heart to God, asking God to give him the victory. And he prayed and we said, praise God, you have the victory. And I just picked up the pack and stuck it in my pocket and left. Well, his mother was Adventist and he called his mother as I was leaving and his mother called my secretary and she told me. But anyway, he calls his mother and said, Mark, mother, you're never going to believe this. Pastor Finley came and he prayed and a miracle happened. An angel came down and took the tobacco away because when I opened my mind, my eyes, it was gone. Well, I came back, you know, to Chicago to the Soul Winning Institute and I had this uh, pack of cigarettes in my pocket and I was going to teach class. And I didn't think that that was a very good uh, illustration for my students. So I said to my secretary, look, I just came from making an appeal to somebody's house to overcome tobacco, and this pack of cigarettes is still in my pocket. Take it and hide it in your desk, and we'll get rid of it later. So she did. She took it out of my pocket and hid it. Well, about three months later, we had our board meeting with all the big officials from the North American Division and General Conference, you know? And so they're at our board. And so I needed a notebook from my secretary. So the president of the division or somebody else walked out with me and I, I said to my secretary, could you please get me that notebook? She reached in the third drawer, pulled out the notebook and under it was this pack of cigarettes. <laughs> so I just looked at the president of the division and said, don't worry, she's gonna come to my five day plan. <laughs> she said, Mark, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> because she knew where that came from, you see. Soul winning is really a wonderful work for Jesus, isn't it? See, you'll have stories like this too. So, the will is the governing power in the nature of man that brings all their faculties under its sway. Helping people make a positive choice. Now, the will has three counselors. We've looked at the will, we've defined it. We've seen you don't overcome by willpower. All through the Bible, and we should pause and look at it in the Bible first. All through the Bible, the will is critical. For example, give me some Bible texts that talk about the human will and the importance of the human will. Okay? I need Bible texts that talk about the importance of the human will. Just raise your hand. We're going to go center section first. Yes. The verse that says, choose you this day. You knew the teacher was going to come back at you, young lady. But you mentioned the verse, so I'm going to let you off the hook. Who knows where it is? Joshua, uh oh, you're in the, in, the, in the right pew, wrong church. I mean, right church, wrong pew. Joshua, Joshua, you're coming, you're coming. Chapter, help me, you're in the 20s, you're right. In the 20s, Joshua what? 24, what verse? 15, okay, let's look, let's see if you're right. Joshua 24, verse 15, here we go. So what does it say? Joshua judges, right? Joshua, what does Joshua say? This is a text on the will, isn't it? Joshua 24, verse 15. If it seems evil you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. So here he's emphasizing, make a choice. Make a choice. Okay, another passage on the will. Yes. 
They shall. They shall. I need a clearer text on the will, though. They shall renew their strength on the will, yes. Okay, go ahead. Yes, a wonderful text. Okay, I need specifically on the power of choice and the will, okay? Okay, go ahead. Okay, submit. That implies that I have to make a choice, doesn't it? So I'm submitting. Okay, is there any text in the book of Revelation on the will? Is there any text in Revelation 22 on the will? What verse is it? 17, what does it say? The Spirit and the Bride say, what do they say? Come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Whosoever will, whoever chooses to, right? Uh, any other? Yes, Ray over here. Very good. That's a great text because Jesus is on his knees. He's saying, not my will, but your will. In other words, I'm choosing that. What about another simple one is Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you. In other words, choose to allow this mind to be in you. Yes. Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? For God so loved the world that whosoever believes, it's whoever chooses. Yes. Tell me. Now that is an interesting text. And the reason it's interesting, God is working in you to will. It is God in you. You choose to allow him to come in, but he's willing his good pleasure through you as you, as you choose to allow him to do that. The essence of what enables us to be higher than the animal creation is our ability to make positive choices. Okay, now, working with people, we've defined what the will is. It's the power of choice, the power of decision. We've seen that throughout the Bible, there's this emphasis on the will, on choosing. Now, there are three counselors to the will. If the, if, if the will is going to make positive decisions, it typically will refer within the brain to three major counselors. You know, I was lecturing once on neurophysiology, and I said in the lecture, we've got about 100 billion brain cells. And there was a neurophysiologist in the audience, and he said, Mark, we used to think there are 100 billion brain cells, but now we know there are about 200 billion, maybe 300 billion. So the next lecture, I said, you know, there's about 200, 300 billion brain cells. And there was a neurophysiologist, neurophysiologist in the audience, and he said, I think we got about a, ha a half a billion brain cells. I said, how do you know? Did you count them? <laughs> anyway, we got billions of brain cells. What happens is, in the frontal lobe of the brain, this is where conscience, reason, and judgment are located. Reason, conscience, and judgment are the counselors of the will. When the will is going to make a decision, it does not make a decision in a vacuum. It refers back to reason, it refers back to judgment, and back to conscience. Now let's define reason. Mr. Reason is very logical. Mr. Reason is very factual. Mr. Reason will say to the will, this decision is logical, it's factual, it makes sense. Okay? Mr. Conscience says this decision 
is the right decision. This is the ethically moral decision to make. Mr. Judgment says, if you make this decision, it'll bring benefits to your life, and it's a good judgment decision, and if you don't make it, it'll bring consequences to your life. So when a person is processing a choice, they are thinking about, is this logical? Is this true? What are the facts? They're thinking about, is this, there's some, the Holy Spirit is working within them to bring them truth. The Holy Spirit is working within them to bring them a sense of the rightness of this. And the Holy Spirit is helping them to see the benefits of this action. Therefore, if you want a person to make a decision, what do you do? You develop a relationship, you meet their needs, and you begin to share scripture. As that relationship deepens and you eventually are able to share the word of God, you show them the truthfulness in scripture of, say, the Sabbath. That's reason. You show them as well the fact that they're out of harmony with God's will. If they don't do it, that's conscience. And you show them as well that in making this decision, in accepting this truth, there are incredible positive benefits that bring joy and happiness to their life. Once you understand how the will makes decisions, it is amazing how that impacts. Because you're beginning to know, you can never see all intelligent decisions are based on adequate information. They're all based and if, you don't, if, if people don't have that information, so that's why you share a book. When I share a book with a person, what am I doing? Reinforcing the reasonableness of the decision. When I share a tape, what am I doing? Reinforcing the reasonableness of the decision. So you're constantly developing relationships, constantly sharing a book. You understand that positive choice is not made in a vacuum. It's made when people have adequate information. But you also understand that positive choice comes when they sense that this is the right thing to do. You also understand that positive choice comes when the person themselves senses the benefits for the action. Now, there are four levels of decision in the mind. First, there is information. We process the information based on the reasonableness of the facts. Second, after information, there's conviction. We begin to have this feeling, this is what I ought to do. Then there is desire. Then there is action. Let's suppose I'm buying a car, and I go out and I look at a Toyota Camry, and I'm looking at it, and I see this Toyota Camry that I want to buy, and um, what am I doing? I'm saying, hey, what's the resale value of that? That's information, right? Then I say, how long do these tires last? Then I say, how many miles can I expect to get out of the car? Then I say, how many miles will this car get per gallon of gas? That's all in the informational stage, right? And then I get in the car. I begin to drive it. I feel kind of convicted. This is the car for me as I'm driving it. Then I begin to look at it, and I see that that car is priced at $28,000, but then the salesperson says, just today. If you buy today, we're going to take $4,000 off, but if you come back tomorrow, it's going to be $4,000 higher. What does he want me to do? He wants me to see a benefit of buying it when? Today. 
He doesn't say that when I first walk into the lot, does he? He gives me information. He wants me to have this sense of conviction that this is the right car for me. But then he wants to drop the price sufficient enough so I see the benefit of acting now. One of the interesting things about choice and change is this. There are many people that have information and conviction, but they never act. Smoking is probably the best example of this. If you went up to the average person who smokes two packs a day and say, hey, um, are you doing this because of your health? What would they say to you? What are you, crazy man? I mean, do most people know that cigarette smoking is not healthy for them? Do they know that? Yeah, everyone knows that, okay? Nobody's going to say, hey, I'm on a health kick, so I'm going to smoke cigarettes because it, purifi it purifies my lungs, right? Okay, so they know that. So the issue is cigarette smoking is not healthy. They have the information. Do many of them feel convicted they ought to quit? Sure, but what's the problem? They don't have adequate desire. They, do no they desire to smoke more than they desire to quit. Now, I'll tell you, when you study the motivational techniques of Jesus, and I've poured over the Gospels for years looking at it. Jesus was a master, an absolute master at motivating desire. If you have your uh, Bible, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Jesus was an incredible master at motivating desire, at helping people to be motivated in their desire. So you're looking at Mark chapter 10. Mark the 10th chapter. And you're looking at Mark chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. Mark 10, verse 28 and 29. Then Peter began to say, see, you've left all, see, we've left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is nobody who's left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who will not receive a hundred times more in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, whatever you give up to follow me, you're going to get a hundred times more of peace and joy. What's a post-generation looking for? You develop relationships. You meet needs. You share scripture. You begin to share more information about scripture. Then you motivate them positively. If I get up and preach an evangelistic series and I make my appeal something like this, how many of you believe that baptism is by immersion? Raise your hand. They all raise their hand. How many of you sense that God is leading you? I'm going to invite you to come forward just now. And when you get out of your seat to come forward, and you're going to be baptized, you may lose your husband and wife over this decision, but it's the right thing to do. You may lose your job over this decision, but it's the right thing to do. You may lose all your friends over this decision, but it's the right thing to do. I want you to come forward just right now. You may lose your job. You may lose your husband. You may lose your wife. You may lose your family. Is that a good appeal? Is that the way Jesus made his appeal? The devil is already telling them that they're going to lose these things. So what am I doing? Participating with the devil. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. What did Jesus say? He said, when you follow me, you're going to have houses and lands. What does he mean by that? Not that you and I are going to become millionaires. Here's what he means. You want to motivate your friends and university students? 
Share with them the peace that comes from following Christ. Share with them the joy that comes from following Christ. Share with them in your own life the power that comes from following Christ. Share with them that although you are weak and you know you're very weak and you're feeble, that Christ strengthens you. Share with them the hope for the future that Christ brings. This generation needs more than anything else a positive revelation of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And you are the generation to do it. Now, just as we end class, Don McIntosh, come on up here for me. I didn't see you because you wore a shirt that was too dull. Had you wore a shirt that was less dull, I may have seen you in the back. What do you do, Don McIntosh? Well, <laughs> what do I do? I'm a, I'm a teacher at a school called Tell, and I also teach at Weimar Institute. Why do you do that? And one of those things is what I've noticed in working with the postmodern mind is that you can demonstrate um, the power of prophecy even without calling it that. For instance, one of the textbooks we use is your wife's cookbook. When we use that cookbook, we talk to people and we say, if you change your way of eating, you know what's going to happen? You're probably going to get over your diabetes, you're going to reverse your heart disease, you're going to do this and that. And when that happens, they start to come to the church. In our last class, we had two postmodern atheists. They told me the first time they met me, which is always a good sign, I don't like you and what you stand for. <laughs> which I thought was very, very encouraging because it meant they were thinking about it. And what happened as they went through the class was, actually about three weeks ago, one of them Googled my house. Not Googled, Googled. And they Googled my house, they took the address, they came to my house, and you know what they asked me, Mark? They said, look, we don't have a lot of time to talk to you at the seminar because you're, you're, you're talking to this person, that person, but what we wanted to say was, how could we become a part of your church? Why would an atheist say that? They had, and now I asked them that, why would you say that? And they said, <laughs> 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 See, I ha I've been doing this for a few years. <laughs> So, in, and you're working at Weimar Institute, you have a class called Global Health, mm -hmm. and students come for three, four months there to Global Health, and you teach them how to meet the needs of the community, break down prejudice in that community, with the ultimate opportunity of sharing the Bible and sharing Jesus. How can we get more information about it? Come by my booth, fill out a card, I'll give you a free book that gives you more information, and uh, we'd love to see you um, prosper So we'd love to have you come by the booth. We'll have you, we'll give you some information that can help you in your witness to the postmodern. But you can train, you are training young people to reproduce in their local churches and their local communities these health programs. Right. It, it trains you to work in your local church or a doctor's office or on your own. Don't 
they're all the same principles, but what people really need is relationships that are one-on-one -on -one with people that know what to say and do in practical ways, prophetic, practical ways that open them up to the prophetic message of the gospel. And will you stay around for a few minutes if somebody wants to talk to you? Sure, if you'd like to autograph my green shirt so I can know. Thank you. When you leave class today, go out with this sense. You are a generation that God has raised up. Why weren't you born 500 years ago? Why weren't you born 100 years ago? Why were you born at this time now? Because God knew that at this moment of human history, the gifts and skills and the genetic background that he has placed within you would be needed for the finishing of his work. You are not in this place by accident. God has put you here. Go out and develop relationships. Be sensitive to others. Meet their needs. Share scripture with them. Understand how they think. Help them to make choices. Reinforce reason. Stimulate conscience. Share with them the benefits of Christianity. And watch what God does. Let, let's stand and let me pray for you. Father in heaven, what an incredibly good time we've had in class. Thank you for every one of these students. Every one of them has a destiny. Every one of them has a divine plan by God to make a difference in the lives of others. Send them out of this place on fire for you to witness for Jesus until you come again. In Christ's name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.